ways of, of learning. For sure. Okay, we're in Mark chapter 14, and in a minute we're going to read some of the passage here. Let me start off by asking a question. Uh, by the way, you can thank Salem. She uh, was here a couple of weeks ago with me and sharpened a lot of those pencils. At least, maybe she sharpened the ones in the other box. Uh, okay, those are those are good. Okay, good. There was a lot that hadn't even been touched yet. I know one time we had some all out. Yeah. So, what do you think about? Uh, a word association game, I guess, to start off. I say a word, and then you say the first thing that comes to your mind. You ready? Well, I mean, you can if you want to. Grief. Said angry. I did. Happy? He was thinking of the opposites. <laughs> so, do you, do, what do you think about grief? Uh, is grief a, a a Christian emotion? Is it a is it a is it a non is it an unchristian emotion? A human emotion? Huh? Some things grief God. Yeah, that's a good people point. I didn't even think about that. If they don't have grief, they don't have any feelings. That's a good like point. I have met Christians that maybe they wouldn't have said that grief is an unchristian state of mind. But I think they believed it. Because they never expressed any grief. They were embarrassed by the idea of being in deep sadness. Let me use a different word, depression. Who are you talking about? Huh? Who are we talking about? Well, I didn't Any, say any names. Uh, or Christian. Uh, it was somebody that, just in general, just in general. Now, there is somebody I'm going to bring up specifically, you don't know later, but. What about the word depression? How is depression related to grief? I'm not a psychologist, nor do I, did I sleep at a Holiday Inn Express last night. But I think there is, like you said, I think Ren's the only one that got that. Or the only one that thought it was funny anyway. <laughs> there's, anyway, there's this old thing, this old joke. Job didn't think that grief was an, un an ungodly emotion. Do you remember the book of Job and the things that he experienced? And the way he expressed himself through those hard times. Neither did David. You look at the book of Psalms. How many Psalms are there? 150 on the dot. More than half of them are what we call Psalms of lament. Psalms of sadness. Psalms of sorrow and grief and despair. When we look at... Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42, I think, I mean, there's a lot that we see here, but one of the things 
that we're able to, to see is, a, is the way the Son of God dealt with grief. And how he dealt with it is a way maybe that we should model our response to grief. Does that sound like a plan? I mean, we can't always do the things that Jesus did. But most of the time, the way Jesus acted was as an ex- not just as an example to us, but as an example to us. Yes? So, um, somebody read verses 32 through 37, and then somebody else read verses 38 through 42, and we'll begin. I'll start. Okay. And now they came to an olive grove called the Garden of Gethsemane, and he instructed his disciples, Sit here while I go and pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him and began to be filled with horror and deepest distress. And he said to them, My soul is crushed by sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and watch with me. He went on a little further and fell to the ground and prayed that if he was possible, the awful hour awaiting him might never come. Father, Father, he said, Everything is possible for you. Take away this cup from me, yet I want your will, not mine. Then he returned to the three disciples and found them asleep. Simon, he said, asleep? Could you watch with me even one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed in the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping, because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Okay. So let's 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 take care of some contextual uh, considerations. Uh, when is this happening? You know your who, what, when, where, why, how. We know the who. It's Jesus and his disciples. Right after the Last Supper and the Passover. That's right. So and there, you know, I, I, for if you remember from two weeks ago, we, we said that uh, verses twenty six through thirty one, we know from. Other passages is actually happening on route to the Mount of Olives. And so, and we also know that Gethsemane is on the Mount of Olives. So um, that's where this was happening. I showed you some pictures of that uh, two weeks ago. We also know, uh, with the benefit of hindsight, that this is the night of his betrayal. In fact, the next week, in verse 43, we read about his betrayal by Judas, and it's the night before his death. So, man, there's a lot that gets packed into about, uh, you know, 12, 15 hours here. A lot happens. So, um, what, and, uh, again, there's a million different directions. If I said to Joel, I want you to teach Matthew, uh, Mark 14, 32 through 42, he might not even talk about grief. There are a lot of really good, meaty things you could talk about from this one passage. The way I read it, I was just so struck by Jesus' words in verse 34. My soul is sorrowful even to death. And I just thought, what, a, what an incredible thing for God to say. I mean, I know he's the God-man, but still, God is saying this. And so... We don't talk about grief a lot in uh, 
in the church, and so I thought this was a good opportunity to maybe discuss it a little bit. So we must develop a biblical view of grief, and that's what that first um, main point there says. We must develop a biblical view of grief. And it helps when we properly understand, number one there, Jesus' nature. Now, I mentioned this, I forget if it was two weeks ago or three weeks ago, but Jesus was and is, you can never just use uh, the was, right? Because Jesus still is fully God and fully man. I know one of my kids asked me a couple of weeks ago, maybe even last week, they said, did Jesus, is Jesus still a man? When he went, you know, he's in heaven now, right? I mean, and I said, well, what does the Bible say? We turn to Acts chapter 1. The angel says, you're going to see him return just as he left. So he's, and Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that our bodies are going to be made like his. Are we still going to have bodies in the eternal state? Yeah, so, so does he. He, he is fully God. He is fully man. And, and I didn't want to bore you too much, but there's this really good <laughs> um, statement that was made in the year 451 by Christians who were combating heretics, people that wanted to confuse the nature of who Jesus was. And I don't want to bore you with details, but there were people, there are still people like this. I, in fact, I thought to myself, are there still people that believe this? That Jesus was not fully God and fully man. That when he came to earth, he divested himself of his deity to the extent that he was no longer truly God. He was man only. And, you know, they'll, they'll have, they have what they think are good reasons for that. I mean, you know, for example, this guy, I listened to about two-thirds of his sermon this week on YouTube, and he said, uh, if Jesus was fully God, then he couldn't truly understand what we go through. And that was something that he said. He couldn't truly, you know, the age-old question, could Jesus have sinned when Satan tempted him, right? And people debate about that. Well, this guy obviously used that as a means of saying, well, he could have sinned, which maybe he could, maybe he couldn't, but then he went too far and said, Jesus completely divested himself of his godhood when he came to the earth. And we would disagree with that. In fact, we would say that's heresy. I would say you can't believe that and be a Christian. Of course, I'll let God be the judge at the judgment seat. What we would say, what would be a better way of describing what Jesus did when he came? What would be? I, that was exactly the word I was going to use. He he laid aside. So think of it this way. Matthew 17, I think it's Mark 12, when he goes to the Mount of Transfiguration, what does he pick back up for just a couple seconds? Maybe minutes. His glory. And they see him up there. Matt, Peter, James, and John. They see him shining in brightness. He picked up his glory for a couple of minutes, and then he, he put it back down. Philippians chapter 2, if you want more info. Philippians chapter 2. You see where it says Jesus laid aside. Um, some of these, uh, what's the word? <laughs> some of these qualities of, of Godhood. But, but, he, but all the way back then, they were arguing about this. Uh, this statement of Chalcedon says he's perfect in Godhead. I'm just giving you the ones that need to be filled in. The self-same, perfect in manhood. So not only was he fully God, but he was perfect 
in as much as he was God. Not only was he fully man, but he was perfect. And the next one, he's co-essential with the Father. That means he shares the same essence as God the Father. And of course, co-essential with us according to manhood. As a man, letter C, Jesus experienced humanity in all of its forms. Now, there are certain areas he did not. Uh, I don't want to be crass, but you know, Jesus didn't experience sexual pleasure, right? He was not married, and we know that he would not have broken the law of God. But in all the ways that make you human, uh, I mean, is a baby human even though they've never experienced sexual pleasure? Of course they are. Yeah. Uh, he experienced all of those things, including sadness, except for one. What is it? Sin. And I would even argue that to be truly fully human is not to sin. When God made Adam and Eve, he made them sinless. It's a, it's a, it's a taking away of our humanity when we sin. Jesus' emotions... Uh, look at him. It says he, and these are things you can fill in here, but my translation says he was greatly distressed. Verse 33, he was troubled, very sorrowful, even to death. Have you ever felt this way? I don't just mean after your ball team loses. I mean, really. I mean, I think that some of, or most of his sorrow was coming here knowing like, if, if any of us knew that somebody tonight was going to betray us to the point that we get the death penalty tomorrow, our sorrow would be unmeasurable to a yeah. certain extent. Because, I mean, we, if we knew that, I mean, we were just going to get turned in tomorrow and go to jail for a month, we would be just depressed about that or, or, you know, we would just be very down and grieved about that. So I feel like he knew yeah. that humanity... <laughs> Was about to hand I mean, we spend a lot of time worrying about things that don't happen, right? right. And right. so and he's worrying about something that is literally the killing of, and he knows the beginning, middle, and end to this situation. And there's a little more, which we'll get to in a second, that is also taxing his soul. But I don't want to get there just yet. Um, there is more, but wait. There's more. Yes, there is. I don't um, think Jesus was an ordinary man. If he was, he couldn't have done the miracles and things he did. Oh, no. He wasn't ordinary. He was 100% God. Absolutely. We also know that Jesus was tempted at this time. Um, there were real temptations. I don't mean just at this time, but he experienced humanity and grief. To be tempted is to, you know, especially if you fall, is to experience grief. But I think it's interesting that he began and ended his ministry being tempted by Satan. The Bible doesn't say that he was tempted by Satan here, but can you imagine that Satan would have missed this opportunity? I cannot imagine that Satan would not have been there doing, you know, messing with him. Look at Jesus' posture. We've looked at his emotions, his temptations, his posture. He fell on the ground. Face down on the ground was the traditional posture of humility and prayer. Ren, you saw some Muslims in the uh, food line parking lot last week. What posture did they have as they prayed? Face down, right? That's what Muslims do. It's one of the only things they get right. I think we would do 
If your knees can take it. <laughs> if your back can take it. <laughs> I'm not saying we all should do this. If you can do it, it actually, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. I'm being serious now. It changes your mindset when you get on the ground, when you put your face on the carpet. It changes the way you think about what you're saying. And that was his posture. He was on the ground. Jesus' appeal, he says, Abba. What does Abba mean? Think of, think of it like this. Uh, Evangelina doesn't know many words yet. She is learning. She's, uh, she can say cake or cup or little things like that. But her first two words, or at least two of her first five words, what do you think they were? Mama, Mama and Dada. You ever wondered, you, know, you ever considered that Dada is not just what we call it's not randomly chosen. We humans chose that word because it's easy right. for little children to say. Now say Abba like that. That's the, it's the it's one of the first words a Hebrew child would have learned, and it shows an informality. Jesus is the only person. Uh, if the Jews had been <laughs> on the scene, they would have stoned him on the spot because you don't talk to God that informally. But Jesus did. And he says something that's kind of heartbreaking. He says, don't let me suffer. Imagine one of your own children saying that to you. But, uh, by the way, we can address God like that because Paul does. Paul picks up that same language. In Romans 8.15 and Galatians 4.6, he calls God by the name Abba. Jesus is different from anybody else we see in the, in the Gospels in that he always calls God Father, or in this case, Abba, or in this case, Abba Father, except for one time. When's the one time he doesn't call him Father? On the cross, when he says what? My God. My God. And uh, he says here, this is interesting, look at verse 36. Abba, Daddy, Father, all things are possible for you. All things are possible for you. Is that true? It is true. I mean, God can do literally anything that's and, yeah, he can do anything that agrees with his character. In other words, God is a rational being, right? That's why the world is rational. If evolution were true, the world would not be rational. Uh, it's rational because the creator who made it is rational. So can God make a square circle? Well, no, because a square by definition is is not, not a circle. God can't, in other words, God can't go against his own nature. But could God have delivered Jesus? He absolutely could have. And yet Jesus continues with this. He says, remove this cup from me. So what does Jesus want? He uses this imagery, the cup. Um... That, that was common imagery related to 
the wrath of God. Just, I want you to look at just one example from the Old Testament. Go to Jeremiah chapter 25. You can find a lot of places that, that use this kind of language, especially in the prophets. I think that's basically all the only place you're going to find it. But in chapter 25 of verse 15, or in chapter 25, which is about the future 70 years captivity. In other words, Babylon has not torn down the walls, has not burned down the temple yet. Jeremiah is telling them it's going to happen. You're going to be there for 70 years. Get used to the idea. Don't fight against it. Look at verse 15. Thus the Lord, the Yahweh, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath. So if you've ever wondered what is in the cup that Jesus was talking about, it's the wrath of God. Which brings me back to your point, Matt. What else was torturing him? It was this idea that he would face his father's wrath for the first time in his life, which can we even imagine what that means when you're an eternal being? I mean, if I said for, in the first, for the first time in my life, I could quantify that in 46 plus years. When you're eternal, what does that even mean? I, I can't even begin to know what Jesus was going through. But we also see Jesus' resolve, not my will, but yours be done. He, the Bible says that he set his face as a flint, like stone, towards Jerusalem, knowing what would happen because he loved you and he loved me. Human condition, you know, getting back to grief and not just Jesus' experience of it, the human condition is fallen because of sin. Jesus says here, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Your flesh is not evil. It's just weak. I remember one time when I was growing up, my mom and I were having one of those heart-to-heart -heart conversations that you have with your mom sometimes. <laughs> Maybe you didn't, but we did. And uh, she, I forget exactly what it was about, but she said something like, I know that you're made of dust. I know that you're weak. And that was one of the first times anybody had ever personally said that to me. And it made me feel good because it, it, I realized I'm not doing this just because I'm an evil person. I'm doing this because I'm weak, right? And, that's, and Jesus said that to them. Watch and pray, because your flesh is weak. So here's a question for you. If you're more susceptible to spiritual attack when you're physically weak, how important is eating well, getting proper rest? You know, Seventh-day Adventists get a lot wrong. I don't know if you know any Seventh-day Adventists. They have some strange ideas. They get a lot right, though. One of the things they get right is they emphasize too much in this, in, they emphasize it too much, but they emphasize health and wellness a lot. We would do better if we emphasized health and wellness a little bit. You know, Paul said uh, bodily exercise profits little, but that implies that it profits some, and Paul didn't have Twinkies to deal with. <laughs> and uh, you know, Mrs. Smith and bake well. 
He did allow for it. He did allow for it. Who knows? Paul they don't eat bacon. Seventh day Adventists do not eat bacon or pork, I don't think. That's it. They try to they try to stick to the dietary codes very strongly. If you if you I'm not advising you to do it, but if you if you went to their website, like Seventh Day website, whatever it's called, you would see a lot about health and wellness. And I will say this, when we're physically weak, whether that's because we're not eating right or uh, we have some kind of a deficiency in our vitamins or we're not getting enough sleep, do you think the devil is more likely to be able to tempt you in those times or less likely? I think he's more likely to be able to win some battles. Well, that's true. I couldn't agree more. And that's and, and the human condition, like we said, there is is fallen because of sin, and deep sadness is part of that fallen condition, what we call grief, deep sadness. Now, here's some applications I. I thought of, and I want to hear from you on this. It, we should accept that we're going to experience deep sadness. I, I think it's easier for older people to accept that because in many cases they've already experienced it, either through the death of a, a spouse or the death of a child. Um, younger people, it's like, it's like I'm becoming... My parents. I, I had a conversation with Salem earlier today. It was exactly the kind of conversation my mom had with me when I was a kid. She, it was dark as midnight in the room, and she was reading. And I said, I said, Salem, turn the light on. I can see fine. And I thought, oh, my. I've heard this before. Except it was me saying it. Um, I remember as a kid not really understanding grief, sadness, that you don't experience it. And I have to be honest, I, haven't, I still haven't experienced it to a big level um, because I was not super close to any of my grandparents who have all passed away now. I think when my mom or dad passed away is probably the first time it'll hit me. But I need to, I'm, I'm, I'm priming the pump. I'm accepting that it's part of what it means to be a, a person, a man. Secondly, I think we need to admit that it's okay to grieve. Now, I, asked, I started off with that question, and y'all gave all the right answers. But, you know, I knew somebody once who, after her husband died, she said, you know, everybody said, you know, came up to her, and you know, I'm fine. And they said, your husband's dead. Yeah, I know where he is. He's fine. He's in heaven. There's no reason for me to grieve. And I thought, well, I mean, if that's, if that's your makeup... I guess it's okay. But my problem was, it's almost like she started preaching after that. that that's how everybody should be. Boy, that's just not how most people respond. And, uh, you know, I think, I think there's, a, there's a segment of Christianity out there that views people as weak when they're sad. And I don't think we should do that. Now, can we linger on in grief? Too long, and can we let it overtake us in ways? Well, we'll talk more about that. Third thing, understand that you should grieve. You should grieve. Romans 12 says, weep with those who weep. 
1 Thessalonians 4 says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. In other words, we're supposed to grieve, but in a different way. If Paul didn't want us to grieve, or he would have just said, Here, listen, what are you guys sad about? They're in heaven. They're better off. And that's one area where I think, and I try never to do this, but I've heard preachers at uh, funerals almost preach a, a sermon that almost makes you feel guilty if you're sad. Yeah. And part of that is we've changed the culture of funerals. You can't call it a funeral anymore. What do you got to call it? Celebration. A celebration of life. Now listen, I'm not, I'm not opposed to that language, but it don't feel like a party. It's because we're not celebrating. Not really. We're there to grieve. At least that's what we should be doing. I think we should grieve when we go to funerals. I think it's okay to cry. It's okay to be sad. It's okay. And you can disagree with me on that. But it's like, if we're okay with the idea of grief, then why did we change the language about grief? Are we really okay with it? Or are we not? And maybe the church isn't the one that did that. Maybe the world is the one that did that. Because to the, to the world, what happens after death? Well, there's, there's nothing. This life is all we have to celebrate. So, the church must learn how to process grief in a Christian manner so that we can teach the next generation how to honor God in our grief. I think we should grieve, but we shouldn't become bitter. Amen. Because some people become bitter and blame God, and that's not a, a good path to take. It makes it miserable for you and everybody else if that happens. Well, you are leading me directly into my next big point. It's a time to grieve and a time to rejoice. But grief is more for, for us. The celebration is more for them because we know we're... And maybe that's the way to think about it. Yeah. It's a melding of the two ideas. So what would a biblical model of grief look like? How should, you know, Paul says, grieve but not like those who have no hope. So what does that look like? I'm going to give you a, a brief model of what I think it could look like. What does the text say, first of all? Jesus was doing what? During his grief. Praying. He was praying. I think that's one thing we leave out. He instructed his disciples to pray. And they were... <laughs> you know what's funny? That happened three times. <laughs> they were really sleepy. That was a good meal at the Last Supper, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they had turkey instead of yeah. lamb. I don't know. But do you think that he felt as betrayed by that as what Judas did? Well, I mean, I have never thought of that. I, that was a betrayal. It's a betrayal of a different sort, isn't it? And you know what's interesting about that number three? I'm, you know, you funny you say that. Uh, three times Peter's going to deny him. Three times Jesus is going to, now this comes from the book of John and nowhere else, but Jesus is going to ask Peter, do you really love me? Right. Because Peter personally failed six times, if you think about it. But I think that is a betrayal. 
And that's the next thing. Letter A there, they're under the principles. The devil attacks when we are weakest. The disciples were clearly tired. And I don't want to over-spiritualize this. But I don't think it's over-spiritualizing it, do you? Jesus immediately looks at them and says, the spirit is willing. And just in the context there, what is he saying? Your spirit is willing to do what? Stay awake and pray with me. But your flesh is weak. Every time I read the Bible, I get sleep. I think it is. I have, I have told people all the time, if you have insomnia, just start reading your Bible and praying. You'll be asleep in five minutes. I hate that. <laughs> it's not true, obviously. If you really have insomnia, it's kind of a joke. But uh, Here's another thing. Temptation can be strong in times of grief. Um, he's, you know, he realizes that Jesus as normal, is talking over their heads here. They're not getting what he's putting out. They're thinking, it's like the time when, when he's talking to the woman at the well. He had sent them into town to get bread, food, and they come back with the food, and she's gone. She's gotten saved, and she's going back to Sychar to tell everybody. And he says, I have food you don't know about. And they said, did he already eat? <laughs> he's always talking and they're not getting it he's not really super concerned about their staying awake he knows what's like literally at hand verse 42 the betrayer and he knows that Peter's going to fail there too Peter's the one that picks up his sword and lops off poor old Malchus's ear Peter who just minutes before was saying, I will die with you tonight is going to fail over and over and over again. Temptation can be very strong in times of grief, in times of sadness. What are different ways we process sadness? Well, you... And you know what? I've, I've heard it said, and I think it's true. Different people process grief differently. Um, I, don't, I don't know... I was reading an account of somebody this week that said, I always thought I would have been a weepy person when my dad or my, my mom dies. They said, but when, the, when it happened, I was just, I didn't shed a tear. I was just, I was numb. That's the way they described it. Huh? Right. Isn't that an interesting thing? That's right. And so, depending on people's emotional maturity, their spiritual maturity, their upbringing, um, they can act out, they can pretend, like live in denial for longer than is healthy. They can numb themselves through alcohol, drugs, whether prescription or illicit. Any one of the ways that we process or can process grief, legitimate and illegitimate, can become avenues toward what? Toward sin. Is going numb by itself sinful? It's not. We don't know how this is going to affect us. 
But if you allow it to consume you so much that you shut out your family, you stop taking care of yourself, you stop eating, obviously the, the most, uh, the, the worst action you could take is taking your own life, which we know people that have done that as well. But uh, there are a lot of ways that we can process grief that feel right in the moment, but they either are sin or they can lead to sin. So what might a Christian model of grieving look like? And just real briefly, I think we're running out of time here, but we are. But number one, acknowledge your grief. I think Anne's the one that said it earlier. Just acknowledge it. Own up to it. I, I am not okay <laughs> is a, maybe a way of saying it. Acknowledge the reality of it and acknowledge the source of it. And the reason I put those two things down is because sometimes when we acknowledge the truth, we don't acknowledge the source behind it. Well, let's take... Uh, Let's, uh, I don't want to get too personal here. I just use myself. Let's say my father passed away. And I started becoming angry about that. Well, that's not necessarily a sin in and of itself. But what if I start taking that out on my kids? Or on my sin. wife? That's a sin. Yes. So acknowledge the source of the grief. My kids aren't the thing that... I mean, that, they might be the immediate cause of me getting on, on my nerves right now. But they're not the reason that all this is pent up inside of me. There's something else behind it. Acknowledge it. Number two, acknowledge, and I think this is super important for us, acknowledge God's role in your grief. Jesus here says, Father, I don't want this. But it's not about what I want. It is about what you want. Now, that's a whole sermon in and of itself. Does it did it glorify God for Christ to be betrayed and to suffer and to die? It absolutely did. We could even say with no level of uncertainty, it was God's will. So, is it ever God's will that you suffer? Sometimes. I agree with that, but if I may, with, with respect, I would even say sometimes it's His prescriptive will. In other words, He is most glorified when I am not cured. When I, when I don't get the promotion that I want. You know, think of the Joel Osteen thing and go the opposite direction with it. Joel Osteen says God is glorified when you're healed. He's glorified when you make more money. He's glorified when all the ducks line up in a row. And that's just, if, G, if it glorified God for a perfect man to suffer, could it glorify God for an imperfect, sinful man to suffer? I think of Joni Erickson Todd. Do y'all know who that is? A lady named Joni Erickson Todd. This is a woman who, I think she's in her 70s now, maybe late 60s, but when she was 17, she was at a lake with some friends, 
and she jumped off of a bridge or some stone embankment and it was shallower than she knew. She's been a quadriplegic ever since. She can only move her head. You would not believe her testimony. She has given God so much glory through her life. And she draws with her mouth. And, and I, I'm sure, well, you know what she said? I was going to say, I'm sure she would change it. But she has gone on record saying, I wouldn't change it. Because God received glory that he would not have received had I lived the normal life. Now that's an astounding testimony. And I'm not saying that we could all say that. But can we at least all acknowledge, even if it's just permissive, God had a part to play. He could have kept that from happening. I'll use Janice as an example here. She wants Elwood to survive the surgery. We all do. We're praying for that. But at what point is it ever going to be okay for Elwood to pass away? It will always seem cruel when it happens. And yet the wages of sin is death and it will catch up to us all. And God could have stopped it and he does not. But I think that's one of the reasons why we grieve is because of the wage of sin. Yeah. So we're, we're actually dying because of our own sin. Or we wouldn't experience it. And we'll get raised again because of his righteousness. Number three, let us see there. Humble yourself as Jesus did. Not my will. When you really acknowledge God's role, he is sovereign and he's good. He's sovereign and he's good then that just naturally leads us to a place of humility. You know what, God? It's not about what I want. It's about what brings you glory. Number four, pray. Give thanks. Matt talked about this in great detail on Sunday, so I don't need to go over it again. In everything, give thanks. Even in suffering? I would say especially in suffering. Unbelievers give thanks when everything's going well. What sets us apart? Because we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. And I don't know if this is in your notes, but the last thing, grieve hopefully. Was that in there? I don't think it was. It was extra. Grieve hopefully. Now, I was talking with somebody. I can't recall right now who it was. How do you grieve when somebody you know has died and you're almost certain they weren't saved. That's a different conversation. And it's hard. But we can still, no matter how, no matter what it is that is causing you, what are the words Jesus used here? Distress. Trouble. Great distress. Great sorrow. There's a way that we can deal with it. I think that those ways are acknowledge it, acknowledge God's role, His character, humble yourself, pray through it. I, I kind of glossed over that. But prayer is not just something, it's not a throwaway line. <laughs> this is the, that's the main thing. <laughs> and I didn't talk much about prayer, actually. But I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that you understand how important the act of prayer is. What, is. what is prayer? And don't say talking to God. We all know that. What is prayer? It is an act of reliance on God. Just another crazy thing to think about Jesus 
God acting in reliance on God. It's, it's an interesting... Uh, Too many people ask him but still when he ought to be thanking him for everything they have. Well, that's true too, brother. That's true too. And grieve, hopefully. All right, so what, what thoughts do you have before we close up tonight? If nothing, Brother Horace, would you close us in prayer?